Hello, and welcome to the Doing Democracy podcast once again. I am your host, Topher, and with me are five of my peers. Can you all introduce yourselves? I'm Julia, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Olivia, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Alex, and I also use she, her pronouns. I'm Casper, and I use he, him pronouns. And I'm Jessica, and I use she, her pronouns. All right. Lovely to talk with you all again. So our podcast today is on the book Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism in School Closings in Chicago's South Side by Eve Ewing. Now, Eve Ewing was a CPS student, then a teacher, and now she's a scholar and an author. This book dives into many complicated issues surrounding race education, race in education, school roles, and community questioning what makes a school good or bad, and many other things. So let's talk about it. Uh, We have some questions to get us started, if anyone wants to kick off that question. So our first question is, uh, what are the differences between systemic and personal racism that are discussed in the book? Why is systemic racism so hard to fight? I just want to start off like defining the two terms, systemic and personal racism. Systemic racism differs from racism on an individual level, but has roots in the same evil, a hierarchy that privileges one race over another, namely the white race. And when I looked up personal racism itself, there was internalized racism lies within individuals and then interpersonal racism, which is personally meditated, mediated, didn't know that there were two different but internalized racism is a type of racism comprised of our private beliefs and biases about race and racism influenced by our culture. And then interpersonal racism is a bias that occurs when individuals interact with others and their personal racial beliefs and affect their public interactions. Casper, do you wanna take it away? Yeah, sure. To start off how um, systemic and personal racism is portrayed in Ghosts of the School Years, I chose a pertinent quote from page 12 to 13. One metaphor we can use to understand these two ideas, systemic and personal racism, is riding a horse. Many people believe racism is like a skilled equestrian's choosing. Your decisions and commands to go faster or slower, to jump a fence or avoid an obstacle, to follow a certain route or not. However, thinking structurally, we can understand that racism is more like a merry-go-round. You may be going up, down, and around, and you might feel as though you're riding a horse, but the machine is functioning with or without you. From this viewpoint, we can come to see acts as racism as not the result as individuals being socially deviant, but as perfectly normal and predictable because they are built in the social system. To add to this, in an interview with Ewing on The Daily Show, She describes systemic racism as kind of like the air we breathe. However, systemic and personal racism are not portrayed as two things that are entirely separate. Ewing purposely utilizes American history in this book to show how social structures and lawmaking are entwined to create systemic racism. The aspect of social systemic racism trickles down from the social system to individuals. Individuals that perpetrate racism are still equally a part of the system. However, there is an emphasis that racism originates from the system rather than the individuals. A quote from Ewing on this is, 
This view characterizes racism as something that lives not in individuals, but in systems, the fabric of American society. Wow. So going off of this, um, what makes systemic racism so hard to fight? And yeah, if, if anyone wants to chime in during these questions, please, please feel free. I'm sure we've all had experiences and opinions on this on these topics. So what what does make systemic racism so hard to fight? Well, one of the first things that I wrote um, is that it's really hard to fight because it's so deep rooted into our history. We often cite 1776 as the beginning of America, but the first American colony was actually established in 1565 by Spain, um, which was about 40 years before the first successful British colony. So these ideas have been here for so long and are so ingrained to us that a lot of times we act subconsciously and not realizing this. Of course. And I'm sure, I'm sure everybody like alive thinks that, oh, it was a very long time ago. We're different now. It's so disconnected. But um, I don't know. I think there just has to be that element of awareness that we are still in this system. Shall we move on? <laughs> sure, let's keep let's keep this let's keep this ball rolling. Would we like to ask another question? Yes. <laughs> let's take it away. Um <clears throat> so another uh question we had were uh or was what made the local public schools of Bronzeville such an integral part of the neighborhoods that made um, the community work so hard to keep them open. Um, and I thought this is just an interesting question just because of who um, Henry Diet was. They talk about Diet School in the book and the closing of Diet School. And Henry Diet was a famous violinist. He's an educator in Bronzeville um, as well. And his the whole idea of him was kind of like an homage to a tradition of black excellence. And so naming a school after him was a way of celebrating the community in itself. And it just, you know, I think part of the reason why people fought so hard to keep it is because it gave, it gave people a sense of ownership over the academic institutions they were sending their schools to when they were being racially discriminated against. So they were put into areas where it's like, you know, they restructured African-American spaces and institutions and basically told everyone where they need to go. And then we're like, sorry, diet can't work, but it was mostly just due to CBS funding rather than it not being a stable institution, as they said. Alex, did you want to follow up on this? Yeah, I wanted to bring up the idea of ownership of histories and ownership of um like creating families schools are families and um i think um carla watts who was a former cps principal made a really good point when she was connecting um the history of the u.s and the history of um the slave trade to the closing of the schools she said so now we put 
teachers out to pasture when they have built all these skills for these children. And now they're going to be put out there with other teachers trying to grapple for a job. I feel like I'm at a slave auction. I'm very full right now because I'm like begging you to keep my family together. Don't take them and separate them. And I think that was a really, um, well, moving statement and really shows that um, this cycle is still happening and families are still being ripped apart. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's like, there's this one quote, um, I I don't want to like say it because I don't have the exact page number, but I think it sums up pretty well what you were just saying where it's um, the schools, um, the school itself became a tacit way of celebrating community itself, a place of care, a home, its very existence, a testimony to the history of black education in Bronzeville. It's like making that part of the community and then taking it away by through like funding just feels very um it's just not it's not like a real reason i guess um sorry if that so it sounds it sounds like a lot of the like pain from uh like this story of bronzeville comes and like a lot of the drive to keeping schools or like the importance of schools is this idea of control it seems like you both touched on that that's a that's an interesting approach to look at schools by um i think that i think this topic can easily transition us to the next question like how how does this book affect your ideas of school choice and school funding you guys touched on funding and school closings should test stores be should test scores be used to determine which schools close why or why not uh julia do you have something to say about this yeah first of all i don't think that test scores should i test scores definitely shouldn't be used to determine which schools close um she was talking about how often the test scores of the schools that were doomed to close and the test scores of the receiving schools were pretty similar. They were not drastically different. Um, And the trauma of knowing that schools were closing actually impacted student performance a lot more um, in a way that doesn't seem worth it to to close the schools. Um, But also even, even bigger than that, the issue was that people weren't actually going into the schools and like getting a sense for that community. It was all like a binder full of numbers um that ended up making these or like justifying these decisions to the people who got to make the decisions um and the meetings that were held for parents and students and community members were really more of a formality um their voices weren't really being heard um but in terms of school choice uh eve ewing's driving question for her research of ghosts in the schoolyard was basically if these schools are so bad, why do students, parents, and community members feel so strongly and and fight so hard to keep them open? Um, And I think that this speaks to the community aspect of the schools, which is a really big part of the school choice controversy, I think. Um, Not going to school with people in your neighborhood is a bit isolating, I think. Um, Having to like do all that research and you know, depending on if the parent is involved or falls more on the child to do that research and figure out where you're going to school is an extra um, layer or an extra step 
um, the push for school choice takes away the comfort of knowing automatically that the people in your community will be a part of your school experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that the book talks about institutional mourning and loss of community as a consequence of closing schools really highlights that. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, for for me, like this was a huge perspective check because growing growing up i like i and i'm sure many other people did not have the stress of the stress of like not knowing where you're going to school or the stress of knowing that your school was going to close and there just seems to be this huge disconnect from those who have the power over all the schools and the people who go to the schools uh they don't seem to really recognize the importance of community in school as well as um, the, I guess, trauma and mourning that can result from schools closing. It just doesn't seem to be important to them, like, or at least not as important as test scores. So when it, yeah, when it comes to test scores, naturally these factors would play a huge effect on how they perform in standardized tests. But, uh, and I just like wanted to touch on, of course, wealthier communities would do better. And so like, that's why you see this, this struggle. Yeah. The school choice, um, controversy or the push for school choice definitely impacts, uh, students and parents of color disproportionately. Um, and people of lower socioeconomic statuses disproportionately because accessibility is such an issue when students don't um, automatically have access to the schools in their neighborhood. The parents who work full-time don't necessarily have the availability to bring their children to and from schools when the schools are so far away because they can't just go to the school that's right in their neighborhood. Um, and it's less safe for students to travel home from school late at night, um, especially if they stay after school for extracurricular activities. Um, if they're coming home by themselves on the CTA, it takes like, what, like an hour and a half to get home, depending on how far you have to travel. Um, so it's, just, it's a much more tedious process to even get in. So I would, I would like to read a quote from an interview uh, that e-viewing was a part of that I think perfectly like answers this question. Uh, It's rather long, so. The answer to what a good school is supposed to be is really simple. A good school is a school that performed exceedingly well and consistently on a series of standardized tests. That's the answer, right? That is the presuppositions upon which we place all of our policy, and so on which becomes really complicated when you know, for example, the direct correlation between income and standardized test performance. It becomes really complicated when we have public school districts that are funded by property taxes, right? It becomes really complicated when schools are often the only institution that are facing some of our most pervasive societal problems. Kids come to school bearing the scars of the opioid crisis, bearing the scars of their parents' unemployment, bearing the scars of mental health clinics that have been closed across the city. Schools are where we look those kids in the face and say, you have a place here. I just thought that quote, like, is a good way to wrap things up here. Yeah. Any last comments from you guys? 
I just want to echo what everyone else said where it's like, it really, I didn't know a lot about this history before, um, specifically like with diet and Overton. Um, and I really appreciated learning about it in this book because I would not have known otherwise. And I feel like that's intentional. So I'm glad that we did learn about it. Same here. Yeah. I second that. Yeah. It was a treat to hear from, or so much from Eve Ewing as like a Chicago native as somebody yeah, I find her, she's extremely well-spoken in her interviews. Yeah, she is. Yeah. She's like, no, no BS. She gets right to it. <laughs> yeah. All right, shall we, shall we uh, say our names one last time? Yeah, let's close out. Oh, I'm yeah. Julia. I use she, her pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Olivia. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Alex. I also use she, her pronouns. I'm Casper. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm Jessica, and I use she, her pronouns. And this has been Topher. Uh, we will see you guys later. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>